can turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 9, if you have your copy of God's Word. Mark chapter 9, as we come to the conclusion of uh, this chapter. And this is in some way a bit of a bookend. Uh, many, many pastors and teachers that teach through this book take a bit of a break here. Uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to continue to press on uh, beginning next week in chapter 10. And the theme is to some degree the same. Uh, Jesus continues in chapter 10 to talk about discipleship and uh, what true disciples of Christ look like and how their life is to be uh, ordered. Um, but, but this is in, some, in somewhat of a bookend. And so we're going to deal in, uh, as you'll notice this morning, with the shortest passage that we've dealt with in all of the time we've been together. Typically in Mark, because this is a narrative account, it's stories. So we take the entire story. Um, and, and, you can, and, and it is possible, it, it is probable even, that you can take uh, verses 49 and 50 with what we talked about last week. And you could, I could have just tacked it on to the end uh, and made some comments about maybe what's going on there. But I think these, I think these verses are a bit more important than that. Uh, they're a bit more difficult than that by way of interpretation. But I think they're also a, a bit more important that they would maybe garner our taking an entire service to talk about just these two verses. And so we're going to look at a really short passage this morning. Uh, it does serve as a bookend of this text and of at least the immediate themes that he's been talking about beginning in chapter 8 and then running all the way down to the end of chapter 9. Uh, and I will confess to you, uh, it, it's not a secret that these are some of the most difficult passages, uh, words, verses in the Bible. Um, at least historically they have been uh, interpreted in many different ways, but I'm going to try to help us to glean some truth from them this morning. So uh, I'm excited to study them together. Let's turn there. Uh, and then before we read verses 49 and 50 of Mark chapter 9, let's ask the Lord to give us grace as we do that. Father in heaven, uh, we pray that your grace would abound in us now, that by the power of your Holy Spirit you would anoint our minds, that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts uh, that as we now gaze into your word, you would reveal to us the truth. And even with these difficult verses, uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would keep us from error and that we would rightly divide your word and that we would understand it as you've given it and we might be able to rightly apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 49, just these two verses. He says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So these uh, interesting verses come to us then uh, in the context of what we've been seeing in chapter 8 and 9. And if we were to speak summarily about the content of what Jesus has been teaching about in these chapters, especially in the preceding sections, immediately preceding what we are studying this morning, uh, then it would be appropriate to understand and to speak of the themes in its most summary fashion of being twofold. If you go back to chapter 8 and you see where Jesus is teaching his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and must die and then be raised from the dead. Uh, and so that the disciples then seem to have this aha moment and they get it all of a sudden that this guy is not just a guy. Uh, he's not even just a guru or a good teacher, but he is the Messiah. He's Jesus, the Christ. Uh, and we are to be his disciples, and so there's this aha moment. And so from that point forward, he begins to teach them primarily about two things. 
By way of summary, the cost and the characteristics of discipleship, of true discipleship. You remember, how does he begin that text? Immediately after he tells them that he must suffer, he says, if you who desire to follow me, if you would save your life, then you must lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, and whoever desires to save his life will lose it. So there is this idea then of the cost of discipleship, that that following Jesus is a serious and is a difficult endeavor, and it is not one that is to be entered into lightly, and it is one that is to be considered carefully. So So that following Jesus comes at great cost. It may cost you your family, it may cost you your job, it may cost you your reputation, it may cost you uh, suffering, certainly. Remember one of the things we've seen in Mark up to this point is that this road to glory upon which the disciples of Christ are walking is paved with the bricks of suffering. Now I was talking with someone this week uh, and they were telling me about their friend who always gives the reason that he can't go to church and he can't believe in Christ and he can't have a relationship with God is because he looks around at the wickedness and the evil and the bad things in the world that happen. And he says, well, if there really is a God, why do all of these bad things happen? Well, in part, we're going to see today, because of the cost of discipleship, Jesus intends for these bad things to happen for this suffering to come in the life of His people for good reason and for good purpose. And God's providence is good, but it is not always easy. And that's going to be sort of the maybe the thrust of what we're talking about in verses 49 and 50 as He then, the other bookend to this section, comes to us as He brings it all back together to summarize for us. But not only the cost of discipleship, then He's been talking about the characteristics of discipleship. What disciples of Christ look like. And most immediately, the characteristic that He's been speaking about, if you were with us last week, is that of righteousness. That is sanctification. You remember the stern warning that we heard last week, those difficult verses to hear that we must put sin to death if we are going to be a disciple of Jesus. That sin is serious and that we can't deal fast and loose with sin because our sin impacts us and it impacts the people around us. That it causes not only us to be under the judgment and the wrath of God and separates us from our fellowship with Him, it also causes those who see us and experience our sin not only to be affected personally, but even to stumble spiritually so that, so that our sin causes other people to trip up and to be led off into sin, thereby bringing them under God's wrath and judgment. So sin is a big deal. And so he's been saying, listen, if you're a disciple of Jesus, one of the key characteristics is that you must be characterized by a life of righteousness, that you must be characterized by a life of repentance. So the cost and the characteristics of discipleship. So then we come to these verses verses 49 and 50, where there's a lot of trouble with, uh, it seems, over the years. There's been a lot of trouble by commentators. And I have to confess to you that while they are somewhat uh, peculiar verses, I do not find them that difficult. I don't know if I'm just not smart enough to understand the problems that should be there, uh, maybe the linguistic problems, but I just don't see them. If we keep in mind the things that I've given you in the immediate context and how it is to be connected to those, because it's certainly not given in a vacuum, it's not given to be taken apart from them, if I think we consider it in the context, then it's actually not that difficult to do. He's talking about this business with salt. 
There's this metaphor. First you see in 49, there's, everybody's going to be salted with fire. Then in verse 50, salt is good and salt and its saltiness. And how can you make salt salty again? So there's this issue of salt and then the commandment is handed down to have salt in yourselves. So the question then is, what's going on in these two verses and how do they connect to the verses that have come before them? Well, I think what you see is, if we look carefully in the most basic or general sense, in verse 49, we are told that we will have something. And then in verse 50, we are told that we should do something. So that verse 50 brings about a command... While verse 49 is not a command necessarily, it is simply a reality. So they're not referring necessarily to the exact same thing. They're referring to different things. And they're connected to one another, and we're going to see that. So let's deal with verse 49 first. What is it that will come upon us? Well, what does he say? For everyone, and this is, the, listen, the structure of the sermon today, the, the points, if you will, is point one, we will be salted. And, and point two, we are to be salty. So it's real complicated. Okay, because I think that I think that's the best way to understand this passage and to connect it to the verses that have come before. So what is the thing that he says is simply the reality of the life of disciples of Jesus? And the first is that they will be salted. But look at the language because it's really interesting. They will be salted with fire. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Fire is not salt. Fire doesn't salt anything. Salt is something not only that we have, but that they had in their day and in their time and was actually more important to them than it is to us because they did not have refrigerators. They did not have a lot of the modern conveniences that we have. And salt was a really important chemical in their day regarding their diet and their food and then also the ceremonial aspects because it was a preservative and a purifying agent so that it became... It came into their religious or their spiritual circles to represent preservation and purification. So do you see that they, because of its importance in their life, it, it, it was brought over into their spiritual life? And, and I think that Jesus gives us this verse 49 in the context of looking back to Leviticus chapter 2. You don't have to know what Leviticus chapter 2 says. We're not even going to go back and read it. But it's a passage that talks about the burnt offerings that were offered to God in the Old Testament. And it's very interesting because it says, before any of those grain offerings were burnt up and consumed to God to please Him, to, 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 to offer unto Him, but before they were done, they must be seasoned with salt. It's very interesting. They must be seasoned with salt, and then they are burnt with fire, right? Okay? So, so, so what's going on here for everyone will be salted uh, with fire. Well, when you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we also learn, if, if, if you go there and we're not, just for sake of time, but when you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in the New Testament, you read the passage there that's all about uh, the judgment of Christ that is coming. The judgment of Christ that is coming. And guess what is used to, to be talked about? Fire. That, that there is a day coming where the fire of God will consume His people and will consume all people. And then there is this discussion about those that will be seasoned and those that will survive the fire and those that will not. And I simply am pointing this out to you because I want you to understand that in verses 42 to 48 that we read last time, do you remember the, what he talked about fire? He was, talking, he was talking about the fires of judgment. What did he say? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, take it out. Why? Because it's better for you to enter into life lame than to be consumed by fire. 
So in the very immediate context, there's already been a discussion about fire. But I think that he brings this up because the disciples would have been thinking, oh, I see, I get it. So this fire is for those terrible sinners out there. But what does Jesus say in verse 49? For everyone will be salted with fire. So do you see that he's trying to bring the disciples in to understand that this seasoning by fire, this salting, this purifying, this preserving, this refining of the sacrifice before God is not only for those who are out there who are in terrible sin and lost and in need of a relationship with Jesus, but it is maybe primarily for the disciples of Jesus, so that as they offer up their life as a living sacrifice to God, that that sacrifice must be seasoned, it must be salted. And how is it that in the life of believers, our life comes to be seasoned and salted? It is by fire. It is by the refiner's fire, to to use the language of the New Testament. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's bringing it back full circle for them, helping them to see, listen, this is not just something that's for them. Yeah, the the fires of judgment are a big deal and, you know, don't enter in, you know, don't, don't enter into death and judgment by way of continuing in your sin and walking in your sin and living in your sin and loving your sin. You know, do away with sin and be sanctified into Christ and, and put your sin to death. But it's not so that you can avoid the fire. It's so that you can have an experience with a different kind of fire. Because the fire still plays an important role in your life. The fires of God's judgment, the refining, purifying fires of God are for the world and for His people. For everyone, verse 49 says, will be salted with fire. Now, very particularly in this passage, but uh, also taking in consideration the greater context, what is the fire? In other, practically speaking, how is it that we are salted with fire? How is it that our life is seasoned with fire? And what does that fire look like? Well, one of the fires that I've spoken of is the fire for unbelievers. The fire, the fire in the day of the return of Christ that is coming to consume them. That, that is coming to make atonement, to bring about sacrifice, penalty for sin for those who are unbelievers. That's one way. That's the, that's the fire that has been spoken of in the very immediately preceding text here. But that's not the only kind of fire. There are two other types of fire that I think is uh, being spoken of about how the disciples of Christ are salted with fire. One of them is the fire of sanctification. The fire of putting sin to death. You remember when we talked last week, the gruesome image of cutting off your own limbs. And I told you, Jesus is not, he's not advocating self-mutilation. I mean, you could cut off all the parts of your body and you're still going to be a sinner on the inside. That, that's not the point. He's not advocating that you literally start plucking your eyes out with a spoon. The point is, is that sin is serious and it must be dealt with swiftly and seriously. But what he also wants us to see by nature of the gruesome analogy that he uses is it is also a painful process. Remember at the very end, if you weren't with us last week, that's okay. I'm going to give that illustration to you again. The process by which God puts sin to death in our life and by which we are sanctified removed from our sin and brought into the image of Christ is often a painful one. So that the illustration of C.S. Lewis is, I think, perfect. C.S. Lewis, speaking about this issue, he says, you know, when people come to Christ, they think that God's design is to make them into a decent little cottage. But then as they walk with Him, they begin to feel the pains of the, the saw 
and the hammer and the nails and the construction that's taking place. And it's painful and it's problematic and they don't like it and they don't really want to feel it. But what's going on is, is that they had in their mind that God had an interest and a design in making them into a decent little cottage. But God, in His mind, was making them into a beautiful palace that is fit for a king, namely for Himself, that He might come into your life and dwell there. And so I asked you last week, do you want to be a decent little cottage? Or do you want to go through the fire of being sanctified into the image of Christ that you might be made into a palace fit for the king? So I think one of the the fires by which we are seasoned is the difficult and painful fire of sanctification. Guys, putting sin to death in your life is hard. I mean, maybe it's not for you. Bless you. It is for me. I was sharing with somebody sitting in this room this week about the problems that their normal pastor has. That I'm a regular guy that struggles with regular sins and has to be continually repentant. And, and it is always painful for Christ to be molding me and shaping me into the, into the beautiful thing that He desires for me to be. And, and, and so guys, let us not... Let us not turn our back upon and hate the fire of sanctification by which we are refined and purified for Christ. The second fire that I think is meant, and I've already made allusion to this, so I won't spend as much time here, but the second fire that I think is intended, spoken of in these verses, by which the believers in Christ, the disciples of Christ, are seasoned, is the fire of suffering. Jesus suffered and Jesus' people will suffer. Paul, the New Testament tells us, was appointed for suffering. Is a servant better than his master? The point is not that we would have calm waters as we sail through this life. The promise of the gospel is that we will always find safe harbor on the other side. And it is often, as we sail the rough waters on our way to the safe harbor, that we learn to depend upon Jesus in the boat with us. So let us, let us not hate the, 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 the sanctifying fire by which we are brought into the image of Christ and sin is put to death, and let us love also the fire of suffering. And let us find great joy and satisfaction as we walk with Christ, learning to depend upon Him. So, so, so the first thing that we see in this passage is that we will be salted. This is simply a reality for the life of the believer, and Jesus is trying to get His disciples to understand that if you are following Me, fire is imminent. Fire is coming. I am going to bring fire to purify you. I am going to bring fire to refine you. I am going to bring fire to make you fit for heaven and for my kingdom and to learn to depend upon me. Fire is not just for the consuming of the wicked ones. It is for the redeeming of the righteous ones. Fire is coming. We will be salted. And I would tell you this. If you claim to be a disciple of Christ, if you say, yes, I have a relationship with Jesus, yes, I know Him, yes, I love Him, but you look in your life and there is no fire present, you need to be concerned. Because everyone, Jesus says, not an option, you will be salted with fire. Learn to love the fire and learn to trust Jesus in the midst of the fire. So the second aspect then to this passage, not only will we be salted, we are to be salty. So we go from simply a reality about discipleship to a command of the disciples. He is telling them to do something. You see it there in the second half of the verse. Have salt in yourselves. 
Be salty. Well, we've spoken a bit about the characteristics of salt. It is purifying. It is preserving. But don't, don't miss either that for them, like for us, it also was something that made food taste better. It accentuated flavor. It drew out flavors. It made things taste better. Very, very simply. And, and, and part of what Jesus is encouraging his disciples to do is to have salt in themselves so that they might be the salt and the light. So that as we go out into the world, we can be disciples that not only are in a close relationship with Him and with one another, but that have a deep and a lasting and an eternal impact on those that are not in here and a part of us and a part of the kingdom. So that when people who are not in a relationship with Jesus, they are salted by us. So that as Christ, through the fire, seasons and salts us, He then sends us out to be salt and fire and light to season those around us. And so He is encouraging them to be salty, to be a, to be a source of purification. I mean, do you consider your life and the impact that you have in your workplace and on the people around you to be a purifying agent? I don't know that I always do. I don't know that the language I use and the thoughts that I think and the attitudes that I maintain, that they in the most usual sense always bring about the purification of those around me. Is it a refining agent? Is our life one that preserves people? Or do we cast them down? Do you, do you see what he's encouraging them to do? To be salty for people. Because people need salt. They need to be seasoned. Because if they're not seasoned by our life and by the, the salt of the gospel, then they are going to be seasoned by the fire of judgment. Then it's, then it's imminent. It is one or the other. And he's saying, guys, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, it's going to be like this. And you must... You must be salty. You must be having an impact because you're having an impact one way or the other. You're having an impact one way or the other. But what does he say then about this? What is this deal about for everyone will be salt with fire? Salt is good. I'm not really sure why he added that there, just to be quite frank with you. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? This is really odd to me. Have you ever heard someone sitting at the dinner table say, can you pass me the salt? I need to salt my salt. Do you see how ridiculous that is? The salt is the seasoning. You do not season the season. It's a total, it's a totally ridiculous sort of hypothetical situation that if you're considering just what salt is and just what salt does, it doesn't make any sense. But let me encourage you this, that for them in their day, it would have made perfect sense. He is making a comparison to their life with Him and the saltiness that they have in themselves to the way that salt was retrieved at, at that time. They didn't just have salt the way that we have it now. They, they weren't able to get it in its form the way that we were now. What they did is they went down to the Dead Sea and they dredged up parts of the Dead Sea and then they evaporated the water off of the other agents and it left the salt that was in the Dead Sea. What was the problem with that? That as the water evaporated, it left salt, but it also left bunches of other stuff. There were tons of other chemical agents that were left by which the pure salt was compromised so that you could take this, this much salt 
that might not be very salty because it was full of other things. Does that make sense? So, so that because of the way that they had to acquire the salt, and because of the way they refined the salt, they obtained it, it was, there was a very high potential that if it was not done correctly, that there was not great care taken in the process, that the salt would lose its saltiness. It wasn't that the actual salt particles lost their saltiness. It is simply that the salt was mixed with too much of non-salt. Well, think about that in the context of our lives. Think about that in the context of our walk with Christ. When we think about the impact that we're having, especially considering that he's just been encouraging them to put sin to death in their life, do you see what he's saying? Are you taking seriously the commandments that I've just given you to cut your hand off, to cut your foot off, to take your eye out, to do whatever is necessary so that your saltiness might not be compromised by everything else? Do you, see, do you see the analogy that he's making? That just like the salt that you are used to getting and retrieving, it can be infiltrated and it can be overtaken and it can succumb to being compromised by all these other things that make it not salty. Jesus is telling his disciples that if you're going to be a disciple of mine, you've got to be pure. You've got to be, listen, he's encouraging us to, uh, let's go with the salt metaphor. What flavor... <laughs> What, what flavor is our life supposed to be exhibiting? The first is purity. The first is purity. That we must be righteous. And that we must live lives that are not partly righteous and partly in love with Christ and partly obedient to the gospel and partly in love with the world. That the two don't go together. And that the more of the world that comes in, the less of Jesus becomes evident. You lose your effectiveness. That, that's what it means to lose your saltiness. When the salt was compromised by too many other things, then you used it and it didn't have the same effect. It wasn't able to purify as well. It did not refine as well. It did not accentuate flavor as well. It did not work as well. Jesus is telling his disciples that the more of the other things in the world, the more sin that is in your life, the more compromise that is present in your life of righteousness as you walk before Christ, the less effective, the less motivated, the, the less efficient propagators of the gospel and proponents of Jesus you will ever be in this world. He's saying you will have a far smaller impact. And it will be greatly diminished because of our compromise, because we've lost our saltiness. So the first flavor that I think he's encouraging us in this text is purity. But I think there's another flavor, and I think that it goes with this. Not only purity, but our lives are to exhibit unity. Look at what he says. If, if salt loses its flavor, loses its saltiness, if it's compromised, if it's mixed with other things that are not salt, like sin, it cannot be made salty again. Have salt in yourselves. There it is. And then here, here's the second. Purity. And be at peace with one another. Unity. You know why I think this is here? Because I think the two most damaging things upon the testimony of the gospel are these. Unrighteous lifestyles of disciples of Jesus. Wickedness and sin and unrighteousness that is ever-present in the lives of those that claim to love Jesus. Here's the other. When the disciples of Jesus can't stand each other. It's real simple, people. If, if we claim to love Christ and be, be centered under the gospel and to be obedient to Jesus, 
And people look at our life and they see sin and unrighteousness and wickedness. They're not going to want any part of the gospel and we're going to cause them to stumble. And if they look at our life and we can't learn to love one another as Jesus has loved us, they're going to be totally unconvinced of the gospel that we claim to believe in. I I think those are two of the most damaging. They're not the only two. But I think there are two that he deals with here. So he's telling us to be salty. But he's telling us to have salt and to be flavorful and to have an impact by these two things. By being pure before Christ and before the world. To be sanctified into the image of our Savior. To be putting sin to death. You notice last week was discipleship is putting sin to death. It is necessary in the life of God's people. But discipleship is also learning to love one another. That may seem self-evident. Listen, that's super difficult. You know why? Because I do stuff that you don't like. And you do stuff that I don't like. And you may catch me on a bad day when I have a bad attitude. And I may catch you on a day when you have a bad attitude. I may accidentally say something that I should not have said. You may tell me something in confidence that I slip up and let out. Vice versa. Whatever situation you can come up with, we are sinners Until Christ comes to get us, to redeem us, to make us perfect, to totally take our sin away from us. And we must constantly be battling that sin because not only does it impact the way people see us, it is going to make it more and more difficult for us to love each other. The more like Christ we become, the easier that process is. But listen, when we are able to forgive, when we're able to turn the other cheek, when we're able to love one another in spite of one another, And when we are able to live holy lives before the Lord, people see us and we make a difference. They may not like it, but they're forced to choose because they see that their life does not look like yours. And so the gospel they believe cannot be like yours. Do you see that? It changes everything. So I would simply ask you this morning in closing, and I'm I'm done, what sort of impact are you having? How, How salty are you? will be seasoned, we will be salted with fire. Let me encourage you to endure and receive that seasoning so that you can then be seasoned for the world, so that you can be salty out there, so that you can make a difference. Purity and unity are of the utmost importance for disciples of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for what you're doing in my life. I thank you for what you're doing in my family. I thank you for what you're doing in our church. Lord, I thank you as difficult as it is for the fire that seasons us, for the suffering that we endure as we follow you to glory. It is painful and difficult, and we don't like it. But I pray that you would help us to learn to love it and to trust you in the midst of it. Father, I also thank you for the fire that purifies us that sanctifies us, that makes us righteous. Lord, may you ever be at work in our hearts to take sin away and to make us pure, thereby making us unified. And so I pray very simply for every person that's here. First, that we would be believing the gospel, that we would be trusting in Christ that we would come to know Him and love Him by Your grace because You have showed us our sin and our desperate need for redemption. 
But then I pray for two more things. That for every person in this room that trusts, that believes, that has entered into a relationship with Christ, that we would be purified, that we would live holy lives, that we would take sin seriously and that we would deal with it swiftly, but also that we would be unified, that we would love one another in spite of ourselves, that we would be slow to anger and quick to forgive, that we would extend the same grace that you have extended to us. And then as we are brought into your image through this process, as you do these things in our heart and in our lives, Lord, I pray that you would use us personally and as families in our workplaces and in our social arenas, wherever you take us, I pray that you would use us to build your kingdom, to spread the gospel, that sinners might come to know you. And Lord, I pray also that you would use us collectively as your church, as Redeemer Baptist Church here on the coast, that you would continue to grow us, that you would continue to use us, that you would continue to expand our ministries and give us opportunities to be salt to the world. Lord, bring the fire and make us salty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.